And I'm now going to bring this executive meeting for United Paramount Network to order. Uh, our first item of business we have uh, is the puzzling success we've been seeing on this Star Trek Voyager TV show. Despite our best efforts, it would seem as though our viewership uh, is climbing. Now, uh, as I'm sure you are all aware, it has been our goal to produce some of the most garbage television out there and uh, undermine this entire network's goal and uh, make sure we are unemployed by the end of the quarter, yet that simply is not happening. Gentlemen, what are we going to do? Listen, I can only make one Homeboys in Outer Space at a time. Only one at a time. I, I can't I can't handle the stress. We've got to find a way to tank this Voyager show. There's still 10 million people watching it every week. Did you see our season finale? We had it be some, some dopey friendship thing that happened with a guy who can't show emotion. And people still watched it. Yeah, it's very puzzling. It was quite the... Uh, genius move taking middle season filler crap and plugging it in uh, as our season finale. Again, uh, we know the right things to do, gentlemen. We saw best of both worlds. We have experienced Star Trek producers and staff. Uh, we have done our best to undermine, and yet these numbers are not lying. What could we possibly do to drive viewers away? I got it. I got it. You know those writers, they had those two different episode ideas. One that was that horrible, cracky fan fiction thing where they'd run into Amelia Earhart in space. And then that other one that seemed like a sort of a good idea that they meet this other colony or civilization of humans from people that were abducted. Why don't we make a season premiere that combines the two and does neither well? You are a genius. Let's do it, boys. Let's run the worst season opener we can. Yeah, we can do it! And then let's go, go do some coke off a bunch of hookers' assholes! And we're back. Season 2. Feed your please. A hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. I'm your host, Peter. And I'm your co-host, Joseph. Thanks for continuing to tune in with us here, folks. We are delighted to have you as part of our uh, adventure, because without you, we would be suffering alone. And that would be horrific. Yeah, that is the true uh, nature of this podcast, was that I wanted to watch... <laughs> Joe wanted me to watch voyager and i refuse to suffer alone because my deep appreciation of schadenford we devised a whole podcast around dragging as many other people uh into this miserable trek as possible so uh thanks for coming back and uh, joining us on season two as we see where things could possibly go from here uh as our little interlude uh i'm sorry our intro uh, alluded to we did not end season one on the strongest of notes and i want to circle back around to something TNG's long gone at this point, man. And what season are we in on Deep Space Nine? Uh, we would be going into what I would call the the heart of DS9, because it would be in season four by now. So this is when that show got good. This is when Worf came on. This is when everything started to heat up. They had the, the long-term Klingon 
turn into a war eventually and then the transition to the dominion so you know good trek is being made at this time yeah i mean they've got great trek under their belt all good things happen you know what good star trek is and it's not the stuff i this writing room is bonkers to me i don't know where to start on this one man i think we just need to jump in season two episode one the 37s so i do love that the uh, the very first no i i i, I, I cut you off i'm sorry we watch i watched this episode yesterday may 2nd 2018 joe <laughs> do you know what that is uh if i recall correctly my dear friend peter uh that would have been your birthday my fucking 36th birthday, dude. And your present to me was... <laughs> I know we said we're going to wait to the end before we really put our feelings out there. But in case you're not feeling what I'm putting down, this is probably the stupidest fucking episode of Star Trek I've ever seen. And I spent my 36th birthday watching this goddamn thing. My, my, my wife went to bed. I fell so down the rabbit hole on this thing. It's crazy. I'm like, I read all the memory alpha. I'm reading Wikipedia's like... It's mind-boggling me. This episode was a leftover from season one. This was supposed to be the season one season finale, if you can believe that. And it was a, uh, it wasn't uh, Paramount, or uh, you know, it wasn't uh, you know the Star Trek producers who wanted to hold off. It was UPN that ran these fucking things in this goofy order. They loved it, like uh, Bran Branar or whatever he calls this thing rip roaring fun. Like I, I almost went blind from watching this thing. <laughs> It is uh, one of the most baffling things I've ever seen. Uh, I remembered it extremely well, so rewatching it was kind I'm of sorry. a hoot. I'm sorry uh, that you had to bear this emotional scar for so long and were not able to gift yourself with forgetfulness. It's it's so it's just so shockingly weird. I mean, it's that they made this that this was a thing that they put out and they were like yes we nailed it this is this is good good job we did great like are you fucking real right now <laughs> like, rip roaring was fun that? that's an exact quote from the writer all right so so voyagers cruising along you know going home like they're supposed to when they find spaced rust and they decide to stop everything and follow space rust the other way it, it, it has all of the classic Star Trek convenience tropes, though. Okay, so not only do they find a, a, a rust in space, uh, it just so happens that they also identify the this chemical compound as gasoline because Tom Paris just so happens to be into 20th century automobiles because fucking of That's course he is. How of him. He's like a... A rapier Wesley Crusher. Convict <laughs> Slightly. Crusher. Convict Crusher. That'll be it. The more he pulls this Mary Sue stuff, the convict Crusher. And and sure enough, they uh, very swiftly find a piece of, of Ford clip art floating in the star field uh, right there in the view screen before they cut to the, to the credits. I thought that this whack-ass truck floating stagnantly in space was going to be the worst CG I saw this episode. I was wrong. You were. <laughs> you were tragically wrong. Mm-hmm. So they pull this piece of shit on. They put it in the, 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 you know, one of the cargo bays. And they're looking at it like they're looking at, you know, I, I don't know, like the black monolith from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Like nobody can wrap their head around what this thing is. Fucking two in there with a phaser, right? And, and everybody's just scratching their head and 
Harry Kim ignorantly is like, oh, is this a hover car? Like, dude, you guys are astronauts, essentially. Okay? Are, are you really that stupid? You know 1961 whoa, 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 was... Whoa, 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 Dude, dude. It's worse than you're saying. Because they they know exactly what it is because Tom Paris knows the make and model and manufacturing year from memory. It's a 1936 Ford, actually. Mr. Paris? That was the manufacturing date, 1936. Ford was the name of the company that built it. Antique vehicles are a hobby of mine. He's like, oh yeah, it's a 36 Ford. And you just got this crankshaft, it's got a piston engine, it's just great, it's super awesome. Like, he, he already, he lays it out for everybody. He's like, oh, oh Harry, you're just so dumb, you don't know what this is, this is a, this is a Ford. It's it's like really dude knows all about like cars that from his perspective would be like four hundred years old. Just he knows it all. That's what he, that's what he knows. Okay. Well, Kim doesn't. Kim, you know, thinks this thing's a hover car and that somehow predates man's first uh, adventure into space, let alone Cochrane and all that other stuff. Like it's it's just one of those real painful '90s head scratcher moments. Like who who are you trying to pander to here? Like this is. Just fast forward this scene. Uh, <laughs> my favorite, my favorite part of it is where Tom goes. Now I have to uh, find something they called a key as part of his little monologue about starting the car. No, that's a what? fair point. We have not seen any doors that lock on Voyager <laughs> up to this point. It's entirely possible that the concept of a key and a lock is just too alien to these guys. That's, that's the part you're okay with. All right, all right. It's your birthday. I'll let you I'll let you get away with it. So skip forward. You got some gunshots coming off the tailpipe that everybody reactively ducks for. You know, nobody knows what a truck is, but everybody knows a gunshot sounds like. Luckily, uh, the truck starts off with zero problems. 400-year-old truck that's been sitting in space, and this thing just starts right up. Luckily, because then you can turn on the AM radio and pick up a Morse distress code, an SOS, which they proceed to follow. Everybody's like scratching their head as to like what SOS is. And I'm pretty sure like every other Star Trek franchise has had some sort of like bang on the wall SOS moment. Have it? They? I th- I think that actually showed up in the original series for, uh, I have a strong memory of some Kirk adventure involving the actual use of Morse code. I don't know if it ever wound up in TNG anywhere. It would. I would think that those simple to send message, you know, that I, I that's actually something I think would still exist in the twenty fourth century. You when know? you're in a hermetic environment and you could have potentially, you know, a vacuum of space on the other side and looking for survivors in a space disaster, yeah, I think banging on a bulkhead with a space wrench SOS would be pretty helpful for that search and rescue. Yeah, I, I I don't buy that. That's something that none of them is familiar with. That like Tom Paris knows what a thirty six Ford pickup looks like, but he doesn't know what fucking SOS is. Oh, okay. Yeah. So speaking of what else Tom Paris knows, uh, Janeway decides to wildly divert off of course. And what I how does this thing not look like a fucking trap for starters? Like you're out there in the middle of the Delta Quadrant and you find some piece of Earth history that just so happens to be right in the flight path of the earth ship going in like you're following breadcrumbs back to baba yaga's house like what the fuck man <laughs> hey who is our captain the trap queen 
so of course it's a trap. And this time we're gonna double down. We're not gonna beam into the trap. We're not gonna send a shuttlecraft down to spring mm -hmm. the trap. No, no boy. We're gonna take the whole ship down. We're gonna call blue alert and we're gonna see Voyager actually land on a planet. Now, the idea of a, a, a starship being able to land on a planet is a neat idea independent of all of the other stuff that's going on in here but boy did they phone it in on cg jesus christ it looked like some old terrible ass video game cutscene, like super low budget lucas arts like there's the good lucas arts cg games like tie fighter and like dark forces and this is like i i can't even think of what the worst this is probably still too bad even this is, you know Luke this this is more night trap <laughs> that's not even LucasArts it's it's like some shit on the Sega CD this is something off that was it was the Philips one the CDI was it? yes the Philips CDI this looks terrible this this made the truck floating around in space look really really good and they land the ship and I agree with you I think that uh, the concept that Voyager could land would have been really excellent had they sustained like major damage and had to land for repairs or anything other than like you're already out in the middle of nowhere for a real flimsy reason now you're gonna really expose the ship to some shit but whatever they land it one of my favorite things in star trek is when you get to see the real scale of a starship mm -hmm. uh, by putting a human being somewhere on it like walking around the deck i thought that was one of the coolest things in first contact when they're walking around by the uh, main deflector dish something about the way they positioned voyager on this planet's surface and the people like it seemed really small yeah um i don't know what was up with the perspective on that shot but it was jarringly strange because they were trying to establish the size of the ship and i believe they were yeah. attempting to try to establish it as being massive and it's way out in the distance. They're trying to give it like perspective and that they've come up and like if they were standing closer to it it would just dwarf them, right? That seemed mm -hmm. like what they were going for, but how they had the ship pasted in there, it just seemed like off. I don't know how else to describe it. It just, it looked like a painted backdrop, which I don't think is what they wanted to do. One dependable trope, though. What does this planet look like? Southern California? Southern fucking California! Which I didn't understand, because they said it was an L-class planet. M-class is like your standard Earth I don't really know off the top of my head what an L class is, but it, what says there was weird space radiation that prevented, I would assume prevented some sort of like scanning because you later come to find out there's three fucking cities on this planet that they never seemed aware of. Um, the L, L class planets are supposed to be marginally habitable. That's what I remember from, forget if it was like a technical manual or something like that. I remember like looking at like all the different classifications and, L-class is marginally habitable. Um, so planets that, like Vulcan, I think is L-class because it's volcanic and kind of shitty, but you can mm -hmm. still live there. So it's it, that that's what this is supposed to be. But instead, of course, because Star Trek is anything, it's, it's budget conscious, and all of their planets look like the same fucking park in Southern California. This looks like exactly where they've shot like three other exterior scenes. So this L-class planet is lush and beautiful with a very warm um, climate. So apparently away team is not an away team if your ship is already on the surface. Then it's just, you know, 
unload all of your senior officers with no fucks to give. Janeway just walks out the door and uh, she's out there with what, Tuvok and Chakotay? Yeah, and she, she, I mean, it's basically all of the main characters are, are out in force. Like the entire senior staff is on this little adventure. Janeway and Kim and I want to say Paris break off as a trio and, and to locate the signal while Chakotay and Torres and, uh, and, and Randos uh, seek out substance that is blocking their ability to, uh, to scan on the surface. Okay. And, so there is some sort of sensor inhibitor then that would have prevented yeah. them from seeing these colonies. I, I got a couple <clears throat> thoughts at this point. One, I feel like UPN made the decision to have this be the, season opener because they thought it was just so fucking cool that the ship landed it's kind of a landmark occasion you know it's the first time you ever see a star trek hero vessel land on a planet maybe i don't know maybe back in 19 whatever 1990 whatever maybe this did look sweet obviously hasn't hold up but maybe for the time it looked cool and they're like wow this is really great and and we want to wow people with our season opener we're going to put there I, I think there's kind of a missed opportunity here you got the ship on the ground, I would have liked to see like some cool Starfleet vehicles. You know, she says they're two miles, or I'm sorry, two kilometers away from uh, whatever their target is, and they just hoof it on foot. So, this is 1995 is when mm-hmm. this episode comes out, middle of 1995. Um, just uh, as uh, by perspective, this is definitely yeah like in between seasons three and four of ds9 ds9 had remarkably better effects when they did their season premiere for season four way of the warrior they had the big fight with the station against the klingon armada so it's not like star trek isn't doing good things with their effects at the exact same time mm-hmm. um i agree that the idea of the ship landing is cool totally agree and i think there's all there's all kinds of missed opportunities in this episode from we don't see any land vehicles we don't see any atmospheric vehicles to well shit we don't even see the the these like fuck this fucking civilization that is built on this planet which i'm sure we'll get to with a knife (laughs) i have no doubt so yeah you you have missed opportunities but this entire episode is it's just one unfortunate choice after another. I think there's two things they got right in this episode. One, the idea of having the ship land on a planet. Not the execution, the idea. And then two, the person they got to play Amelia Earhart. Not that they used Amelia Earhart, but the actor they got to play her. That's the only things I'm going to say they did correctly. So they're down and uh, they go wandering away from the ship on foot. And uh, they come across an old propeller plane. And again, it's more the, the truck treatment. I'm standing around slack-jawed, wondering what the hell this thing is. They get on. They find, uh, you know, this distress signal that had been broadcasting on AM frequencies. Plane's still in great shape. Apparently, these L-class planets have no aging effects right. on, uh, you know, metal structures. So this thing's just perfectly preserved as well. And it's got some weird alien cell phone usb battery pack charger that's keeping this radio running 
So Janeway pops off some orders and says she's going to go wander off alone and find the other away team who had uh, gone off to look for a cave. And they found that that cave. Chakotay radios back, says, hey, we uh, we found where this uh, jamming shit is coming from. We're going to go pop in real, real quick and see what's going on. And, and Janeway gives them permission. And, and sure enough, uh, when they all uh, roll down into this cave, they find a clearly redressed DS9 set. Let with- me tell you what. I was so hyped i saw them start moving around i really thought i was going to get to see our old friend ardassian hallway oh i was waiting for him too man i was expecting it i was i was genuinely crushed when they didn't like of all the times to bust out cardassian hallway you're not gonna have it play into this this very clearly cardassian set man but uh it is what it is i guess lost opportunities for potential cardassian hallway canon but it's all right. We get we get basically a redress of the 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 prison area from faces instead, and mm-hmm. and they see they've got these these tubes, these cryo tubes, and they've got people in them. They're not even the cryo tubes. I I, I I couldn't help but shake the. It looked like a fucking like a a supermarket frozen food section, like the doors <laughs> behind the people. <laughs> Like, eventually someone goes and puts their hand in, like, rubs, and you see a person's face behind there. I thought you were going to see, like, some uh, some uh, some winter medley or, or California medley, you know, frozen vegetables in a bag on a, a wire rack in that thing. It was uh, a terrible set, really. Here, here's the thing. Um, apparently, this alien race that, that was responsible for all this, uh, their cryo-freezing was bathing people in blue light. Because that's the extent of the effect that they go with. They're they're uh, they've got that glass and it's got that frosted over effect, like the the supermarket, like you said. And uh, when when they eventually open them up, um, their frozenness is that they're bathed in a blue spotlight while they're under there. Let me let me hit you with some real talk here. Okay. Let's let's pull ourselves out of this garbage episode and look at some bigger picture stuff. They find these humans, you know, very clearly humans, and they can tell by uh, Japanese military uniform on one of the guy and some other context clues here. I would assume primarily that 36 uh, Ford that had been floating in space. That, you know, these are humans that had been kidnapped from Earth. At no point do they discuss, like, this is ridiculous, maybe this is a trap, and, you know, maybe we're all in some sort of weird magic space creatures mind puzzle or something. You know, they're taking all this at face value, but Janeway starts pumping the brakes on, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't wake these people up. Um, they fall back to Voyager, and they have a senior staff whoa, meeting whoa, talking whoa, whoa. about possibility. Dude, dude, you just skipped over the grand revelation moment. Come and on. what a grand revelation is. Someone who would later on in the episode, you know, profess herself to be the biggest Amelia Earhart fan ever. Janeway's rubbing on one of these uh, frozen food coolers. And she sees someone in there who is, I don't know why she's wearing a name tag, but whatever. You got Amelia Earhart in there. Janeway's like spelling out the last name, like mispronouncing. It takes her like two minutes to figure out that's Amelia Earhart. For being her big, you know, the president of her her fan club, like you've never seen her name in print before. (laughs) It's 
the goofiness with which i mean obviously not a surprise right everyone knows about the amelia Earhart. You, you, even if you've never watched voyager ever if you're aware of Voyager, you probably know about the episode they decide to use Amelia Earhart as a character. Not like from like the way that TOS did historic characters in the Savage Curtain, where it was all a fucking alien space baby dream. No. No, this is actually supposed to be the for realsy a- a- Amelia Earhart of this universe is in this show. Like, for real. Uh, played by uh, the same lady who played Spikowitz's uh DA wife in NYPD Blue by the way. I don't know if you remember I that. don't know who that is. No, I don't watch Sh- NYPD Blue. Uh Shannon I- Lawrence, yeah. It was probably the know. first big big name like a guest star they've had on the show as far as like mid 90s TV big name. She was a big deal then. Well, what she came off as once they ended up warming up and I want to jump too far ahead but uh did you see that SNL sketch with the uh, abduction lady? Like, uh, three of, people got abducted. Of course. Two of them had really great, wonderful experiences, and the other one, like, basically became, like, the white trash pig party. It's uh, one of the famously awesome SNL skits because no one can keep their shit together. Yeah, well, that's the vibe I'm getting off this Amelia Earhart. But anyway, so they, <laughs> they go back to the, the conference room, and, you know, I saw it in uh, Next Gen. I can't speak to any of the other franchises, but like, um, I think it was uh, what the season one season finale for uh, Next Gen, and maybe that's why they didn't do this one as an actual season finale. But the neutral zone, the Enterprise is flying off. It's basically the reemergence of the Romulans, mm-hmm. and along the way, they find the cryo satellite with a bunch of people who were terminally ill and had gone under cryogenic freezing. And like, there's this resistance from Starfleet. They're like, whoa. We don't know if we want to get involved in this. It's like they're humans. The Federation represents humanity amongst all these other things. Why why is there such an aversion to thawing out, you know, human captives or or the sick or whatever? I don't know if there's a real rational reason why not to wake them up, although they don't really spend much time contemplating not doing so. I mean, the, the conversation that they have in the briefing is just insane suddenly they're 100 percent believing that they have somehow magically in the delta quadrant stumbled across the for real amelia Earhart. right they don't uh-huh. they don't bat an eye at that prospect they are there's never any doubt in their minds or narratively that that's not the real amelia Earhart. which would be you can the- tell it's you can tell it's a real Amelia Earhart because she's wearing a name tag. Yeah, clearly. You know? Yeah, obviously. She's a named NPC right off the bat. You can see it over the horizon. She's got that yellow name floating above her head. And it, what you see is what you get. She's got like, that blue verification been... check. That is the for real <laughs> Amelia Earhart. They could have had like uh, Genghis Khan in there. <laughs> and he would have had his fucking name on there too. Like anybody worth knowing in here has a name tag. You're good to go. That's your main character. For the episode and uh you know move along face value it's like chakotay's like well you know i guess it is that she, she got abducted by aliens rip, rip, rip. all right let's let's move on like god that's that's insane right, it's insane right right there and they're like all right let's go wake them up and figure out what the fuck is going on because they got here somehow so clearly whatever got them here maybe can bring us home so let's interrogate amelia Earhart about why she's in the delta quadrant 
that they just jump to that as quick as they possibly can and they're like oh by the way only humans or people who can pass for human are allowed to come on this adventure because we don't want to freak them out like everything else fair play though fair play but like is everything else not supposed to freak them out like having some aliens there might have like actually convinced them quicker that what you were saying is true it's not like you've got any like horrific aliens on board it's not like there's like a like anyone who doesn't actually look human i mean balana just looks like she's you know just really angry and Mm -hmm. and you know you got shell the bullion who who you know just looks like he's a really big fan of a sports team as far as they know face painted whatever I get CGI was still very expensive at this time, but I want to go ahead and throw props at um, the Orville for having some pretty dynamic crew members like uh, Slime Guy and some of the other wilder aliens to, I think, kind of cash in the dream that uh, Gene Roddenberry had for diversity and and cool shit sitting on the bridge. So they go back to uh, the frozen food section at their local Kroger. And they find out that you can't just release these people one at a time. That basically, when you deactivate this cryo system, everybody is going to come out. But then also, they have to administer some sort of drug via uh, hypospray. And that's what actually wakes people up. And instead of doing the reasonable thing, which is, you know, wake people up one at a time and process them slowly, uh, they just start going buck wild with these hypo sprays and just make sure that everybody is awake for like maximum crowd panic value. Not that it matters because only four of the people that get wake, woke, woken up ever have lines. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, you know, they just kind of loiter around politely. They're like, there's only one of them that's an asshole. We get to one of the first cool things I actually pulled out of this episode and it was uh, the Japanese dude talking and they actually call some attention to the fact that these universal translator, uh, yeah, universal translators are in play. And they kind of motion to like the com badge. So, from what I've seen so far, the the you know the com badge is housing this thing, and not only does it translate for the person wearing it, but apparently it creates like a free communication bubble around the system, and also perfectly lip sync you. So, yeah, and they su- it seems <laughs> to suggest that it's in the com badge and generates a field, so that mm-hmm. if even if you're not wearing a badge. Uh, it works, which I guess would presumably also kind of exist on the ship. Probably yeah. also has that function. So the universal translator has now become sort of autosynchronous in all of your interactions, which um, I, I will say I just watched finally the one piece of Trek I have not watched, Trek branded things, and I saw Star Trek Beyond. Mm-hmm. I had resisted watching it because I did not like the other JJ movies. I actually did I, I thought Beyond was the closest thing to Star Trek they made out of those movies by far. And I really liked how they did the Universal Translator in that. You know how I refresh me. Uh, so when the, the, the alien uh, comes to the space station and says that her shit all got all fucked up, the way it works is it's on a delay. So she talks and then it translates what she says, but it's like a one second delay. So you see her talking in her alien language and then it's overdubbed by someone else's voice like Siri, you know, mm-hmm. explain, you know, translating what she's saying. Like that seems like a more authentic way a universal translator would work. Um, but obviously that takes time, effort, energy, and effects budget, which none of that ever happens on Voyager. So that's out. 
they saw everybody out and they start trying to, you know, go after this Amelia Earhart angle. And oh, would you say her name was? Uh, Shannon, Shannon Lawrence. Shannon Lawrence. I understand you getting excited to see her. Um, and, and she's good to be your treat for this episode. My treat for the episode came by her co-pilot or no, her navigator. Do you recognize this guy? God, what, what, what is his name? Don't uh, don't look it up. I'm asking. Do you recognize him? I don't recognize him. No. Motherfucking Tackleberry from Police Academy. Hey, Tackleberry! What? Dude, that's straight no up Tackleberry way. from Police Academy. Tackleberry in Police Academy was a guy who had like a million guns laying all over the place. And in a true continuation from one franchise into another, this fucking dude is packing heat too. And before long, he's got that 38 <laughs> special. He's waving it around. Uh, none of the slowpoke Starfleet people can cross draw their phaser quick enough to zap his dumb ass. So he takes everybody hostage and. Uh, they drag the scene out where they're standing around the frozen food section while Starfleet's trying to convince them all of the cockamamie premise of this episode. And just like me, the viewer, these cryogenically frozen people are just not buying what they're laying down. Do you think that it's Starfleet protocol for everyone to give up their service nines at the first sign of trouble? Because they just allow themselves to be disarmed without any protest. And that seems like such a consistent trope. Dude, there's zero procedure being followed anywhere. You got the captain wandering out on the planet's surface with the rest of the executive crew. You know there's some sort of advanced alien thing going on here. You know that they're taking humans captives. Like, there are so many red flags flying around on this thing. And now you're going to let everybody get tied up by uh, Tackleberry with a fucking 38 revolver. Let him shoot you. Who gives a fuck? You got five people there with phasers. I would think at a certain point, they're going to have to sit down and be like, well, hey, guys, apparently the fucking hologram is a necromancer and can bring any of us back alive. So this is going to revise how our tactics work. Whenever we're in a situation where shit might get bad or go to worse, let's just neutralize the situation. And anybody who might die in the process will just, you know, resurrect them. No big deal. And uh, always be in control of every situation. Hey, the EMH has standard post-mortem revival protocols. That was the exact phrasing. Standard post-mortem revival protocols. So we're good. As long as it's not a headshot, you're probably all right. Even if you have a headshot, maybe it'll be fine. I can just uh, hologram you a new brain. Um, <clears throat> one of the many other baffling things about this episode, so like Amelia Earhart is in her Halloween costume in a bag aviator outfits of like you know a, a leather bomber jacket with a pin saying her own fucking name meanwhile this other guy who was up in the plane with her at the same time is wearing like tackleberry he's wearing like a three-piece suit what <laughs> i just love that you keep calling him tackleberry but I mean, he is tackleberry it's awesome. <laughs> it's a uh, and let's, let's just round out things real quick who else can you recall in there there is the very stereotypical I don't this farmer. I don't even want to touch the farmer guy, honestly. The stereotypical black sharecropper. You've got the stereotypical imperial Japanese army officer. You've got Tackleberry, uh, Halloween, Amelia Earhart, and then the background extras are like a hobo, 
uh, a random Indian lady. Yeah. Uh, like, you don't really see them except in that one shot where they're like standing around like, oh, what do we do? Or in the future, I guess. It's just those four that talk. And the, like you said, they're not buying what, what Janeway's trying to sell them. And they go through this tortured scene where they have this insane conversation and, and Janeway uh, eventually like has a heart to heart where she explains that she has an Amelia Earhart fan club card and like appeals to how awesome she is to, to the future to get her to buy into it. Meanwhile, Chakotay is found out the captain is being held hostage by Tackleberry and smoldering catcher gear guy and all of his pals have compression rifles and they're going to go fuck some shit up. How do I keep missing that this is smoldering umpire? Is it just without the vest I become like face blind to this guy? I mean, he gets a he gets a good face shot too. Like the camera's Hmm. centered on him. Is it smoldering? Oh, it's smoldering. He's got that look of determination. I can't believe he missed it. I'm gonna have to rewatch it. You need to you need to check that scene out. He's the first one to get his gat. He's like, all right, follow me, men. Me, the smoldering catcher guy. We're gonna Mm -hmm. we're gonna make shit happen. So uh, eventually. They get out of the cave. They, the uh, Earhart takes the gun from from uh, Tackleberry, <laughs> and and uh, uh, they all decide to march out to see to to get to the ship. And this is of let course, me cut you off there. What does not happen at that point where Janeway successfully negotiates uh, an end to this hostage situation? What does she not do? Tell Chakotay they're free. I mean, really, like you know, your fucking dudes are gonna be coming for. For all that could happen, like, you could have, like, snipers up on the fucking ridges and be leading what has now become your new friends out into the open where they're going to get shot in the fucking heads, which, coincidentally, uh, happens. Yeah, so they they come out, and there's these dudes in the world's best, worst BDSM gear, these black latex, you know, oven gear, which had to be the most uncomfortable shit imaginable to be wearing in the fucking SoCal heat. Could you, yeah. yeah, it's just unfucking fortunate. Uh, start shooting their like little pop guns at everybody. And... I'm pretty sure those are Ferengi uh, laser rifles. I remember from the old Playmates toys, I had the Ferengis, and and I'm pretty sure that's what their rifles look like. So, so they get in a crossfire with the uh, BDSM crew. Another interesting thing here. Tuvok, who <clears throat> had uh, gone back to the ship and was leading the strike team to to attack, like <laughs> let me criticize the shit out of Tuvok here real quick. First of all, Tuvok and Chakota, you know the guys in charge of this rescue party, they don't even have fucking rifles themselves. They're rolling around with the regular uh, phasers. They know they're going into a hostile situation. They, I think they actually don't they get like some sort of like, oh yeah, they they detect the the aliens. Because the aliens are using some sort of like weird sensor suppressing technology, but they're able to actually catch them for a minute. So they know they're aliens out there too. Starfleet comes rolling over the hill and everybody is like an arm's distance apart. Like one good grenade would have wiped out this whole posse. Yeah, I mean, it's standard Star Trek small arms fire fighting. I mean, okay, I'm about to say something slightly nice about something that isn't star trek but is branded such discovery they did hand-to-hand small arm shit better you guys had flak jackets they they seemed to to follow combat logic in a much more realistic way and obviously the 
uh, action in television had caught up finally such that in that show uh, things were were much better than what you see throughout all of Berminera Trek which is dudes standing in clusters impossibly slow fighting around corners using weapons that are supposed to travel at the speed of light but somehow don't it's always dumb to watch no matter what yeah. show it's on i've never the only good fight scene i've seen has been hand to hand was the fight scene with the space goes to kote going from body to body and it was like a kung fu match everywhere and that no, was no no space lasers at all but uh janeway gets whoa, whoa, behind whoa, what do you mean no space laser fucking tuvok laid everybody out with that wide pattern shot you're right and, and when the space laser was used it was used in a way that was really cool yeah so you got this real limp-wristed firefight out in you know some state park in california and eventually janeway i think what flanks him comes up behind him and uh there's this uh you know oh you're human too and then space bdsm dudes take their gimp masks off and you see that it's human people and uh, they call a ceasefire and everybody goes back to Voyager. Correct. Um, one interesting note about these humans that see like one of the few things that was interesting about them was that their last names are cities. Uh, the two that you meet. One, one's mm-hmm. Evansville and one's Berlin. And it like makes sense that their last names are probably based on the places that the original abductees were from. Mm-hmm. It's a shame we don't get to fucking know anything else about these fucking people. Because what what follows is an explanation that these humans are uh, were all descendants from this group of humans that were abducted from Earth in the 1930s, brought to this planet to be slaves, and eventually america all over the place and, and kicked them out and took their guns and and decided to start their own civilization with blackjack and hookers all right they this evansville guy explains all this and now there's a hundred thousand humans that live on this planet and they have three cities and uh you know shit's great they are the cats meow they get yeah they got everyone back on the ship at this point the uh people who had been in the frozen food section now believe janeway and they're all kind of in awe of the situation and what's happening. You've brought the uh, the human refugees back. You find out that uh, this human colony that has kind of blossomed out of slavery thought that everybody in the frozen food section was dead and was treating it as a sacred shine, that they hadn't even been in there themselves for a couple of generations. Um, so their, you know, socks are knocked off that these guys are alive and well, they revere them almost as, uh, as God, not gods, but you know, they're artifacts of the past. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, memorials essentially. What struck me at this point is that nobody in the frozen food section seems to really give a shit about the fact that every single person they know is dead. And whereas in the neutral zone, you had these four people <clears throat> rolling out of uh, cryo and they struggle with it. And I get, you know, you, you don't want to retread old ground or whatever, but nobody cares at all that they're in such a radically fucked up situation. that Everybody that they had grown up with is dead. That They'll probably never see, you know, their home again. Everybody's just kind of living in the moment. No shits to give immediately everybody is completely okay with being on this planet 
they spend so little time with the with the with we'll call them the 37s like they do in the episode they spend so Mm -hmm. little time with them after the wake-up scene that it's just okay they're here uh okay they decide to stay okay the episode's over well so what happens is this dude this evansville guy who was previously our bdsm alien you know, he walks him through the the alien race is called the Briori, and this is like the only time you ever hear about them in any trek at all. And as best I can tell, the Briori are what gray aliens who do the traditional UFO abductions. Who knows? We'll never see them. And and I'll bitch about this a little bit later. But what you're gonna fly all the way to the the Alpha Quadrant, kidnap people off of Earth, despite the cornucopia of races you could have enslaved in the Delta Quadrant, and then fly. You guys, this is amazing technology. You can you can jump quadrants, but you can't keep a couple. And it's three hundred's the magic number we're looking here for, guys. There were three hundred people who were abducted, minus what? There were twelve. How, how many people were in the frozen food section? There eight were at the eight. most eight. Yeah. So you got three hundred minus eight people. They overthrow the Briori. Uh, they destroy the ship that has super baller warp drive. And they colonize the shit out of this L-class planet to the point where it's so impressive that when they take the Voyager crew on a tour through there and, and roll out the red carpet, and this is something I'm actually going to talk about, or by the time the people at home are going to hear this, would have already talked about in our special thing. You know, as Voyager encounters, whether it's this planet or the Skevian paradise, you know, what happens when a crew member is like, you know what, fuck it, I don't want to be out in the danger zone anymore. This place is good enough. I didn't have any friends or family back in the Alpha Quadrant, and this is just as good as, you know, dying in the vacuum of space. I want to stay here. So I'm kind of glad that they addressed this topic a little bit. I would say that's the biggest takeaway from um, this episode for me is what happens when your crew is offered something better than what they have potentially what does uh, Janeway end up doing? But yeah, man, they, they tout about how great these three colonies are. It's so impressive. And it's the biggest cop out out of any sci-fi show I've ever seen. It's just like, they jump forward like, wow, wasn't that amazing? Yeah. Oh God. You don't even get like a matte painting of like the colony. It's just, yeah. They just do through. voiceover. They do a voiceover explanation with Janeway's captain log to be like, it was the best thing ever, and now it is so difficult to know if to stay. Captain's log, stardate 48975.1. Evansville wasn't exaggerating when he said they have a lot to be proud of here. It was an amazing experience, but it's left me a little disturbed. It It's... This episode is so confused of what the fuck it's supposed to be about. Is it this cracky fan fiction about finding fucking uh, Amelia Earhart in space that's just cheese? Or is it supposed to be an episode about finding this outpost of humans and having a serious discussion about whether to stay or not? Because for the rest of the episode, we're suddenly on this B track, right? We're on this B track now. And suddenly you've got to hurry up and have a bunch of characters seriously consider wanting to stay on this planet for no reason that we can detect because they don't even bother to show us the viewer why they just tell us it seems so unearned and stupid my okay as soon as we were done my wife was like you know let me rewrite this episode real quick how about instead of all this amelia Earhart shit they find the rust trail and they find the truck and it leads them to the planet and they get to the planet and the planet is 
these humans and they built these cities and it's utopian and everyone's getting along and it's really cool and the episode is just all about them encountering these people and having to seriously contemplate the idea that they could stop here and be part of this human civilization in this part of the galaxy rather than continuing their long trek home that that was the entire fo- that could be the entire focus of the episode and you go through characters coming to the conclusion that they want to go home and their interactions with people and you have a love interest or something or something with all that like that would have been good that, that i'm gonna like- do you one better i'm gonna do you one better not only do some of the crew stay like the maquis who are just looking at jail sentences when they get home um but some of these people who have been on the colony and who have a a thirst for adventure and wanting to see a world beyond you pick up some new crew members off this thing you diversify your roster maybe you replenish some lost people that could have died earlier in the season and you've got a really diverse cool alternative hearth history uh filling in some of these lieutenant and other you know tertiary character things you could have picked up some really cool people off this planet Mwah, I love it. Both of those are good. But instead, you got Amelia Earhart, who <clears throat> repeatedly is hailed as essentially the avatar of adventure and exploration and the spirit of of travel, who has just woken up out of this cryosleep, who is about to embark on this massive, apparently CIA OSS spy mission on Japan uh, with, uh, with her ever trusty Tackleberry. You know, she wakes up in the in the frozen food section is like, well, you're not on Earth anymore. And look at all this other cool adventure that you might go on, including flying on a fucking spaceship and getting home. And of all people, she's like, you know what? I think I just want to poke around here on this uh, Earth 2 colony. I want you to keep in mind that everything you said, everything you said is correct. Like mm-hmm. that makes no sense whatsoever. But the worst part is they ha- they juxtapose a scene where all the three other Kroger frozen food section uh, people are like, yeah, we're going to stay. No problem. This is the best. And Amelia Earhart's still weighing if that's what she wants to do or not, right? That's this. That's scene A. And then the next scene is her telling Janeway, yeah, we're going to stay. These people are part of me. And it's this long dialogue about how, oh, yeah, these people are awesome. They built this awesome thing. And, you know, all this is so right for you to stay and all this. Like, it's one, like, I'm not sure. I think I kind of want to explore space. That would be cool. And then immediately after that, a bunch of shit we never see, never understand, never gets shown to the audience whatsoever is the reason why she wants to stay on the planet. And January's like, yeah, that's totally the right idea. It's just rushed and stupid and dumb in the sloppiest and laziest way possible. Yeah. It's it's terrible corner cutting. You've been better off and like, look, you know, <clears throat> either we can talk about how sweet these cities are that we're not going to show you and just it'll be in running gag for the rest of this episode. <laughs> or maybe some crew members, like they could have had like, you know, uh, some more uh, mess hall scene where Amelia Earhart and these other uh, fish stick people <laughs> are... Uh, are talking to the crew members like, yeah, and then Janeway did this stupid thing, and then Janeway did that stupid thing, and then Janeway did this stupid thing, and Amelia Earhart in her in her Halloween costume just kind of like, whoa, this broad is like bad news. Like, guys, we don't want anything to do with this. Like, <laughs> I fly dangerous stuff for a living, and I can tell you right now, 
we don't want to be anywhere near this Janeway lady. Like, she is bad for business. We need to just fucking stay here and not have anything to do with these brainwashed Starfleet people. All they would have had to do to really show you how great these cities are, let's just go to your local mall and get another sweet escalator shot in there. <laughs> throw some Okampa in the background. Like, when she when they throw off, show off Kef's ears, like, no, look, she's an alien. We're telling you the truth. We really are from the future. All this other stuff. She would have like pulled it back and be like, "Oh no, they're, they're, those are just Ocampa. They're all in that shopping mall up over the hill." But they never really answer why that truck was in space, which is what really led this whole Rube Goldberg of an episode to take place. Like, why did correct. the yeah they never did? Why did the Briori just dump this fucking truck in space? They kept her plane, but they they dumped the truck. Uh, something that the uh, Imperial Asian officer said caught my ear, and that was, uh, "Oh." <laughs> like his whole reason for wanting to stay is like there's Japanese people here so I'm going to stay here like uh how could there be Japanese people in this colony you've got how many hundred thousand people 100,000 is what they say so not a lot really for three cities 300 people minus the eight that were in the frozen food section this actually set me down a pretty big um, research path uh, about, uh, and this is, you know, of course, like 1.30 a.m. by the time I finally pull my head out of this. Your minimum viable population, if you're going to go out and colonize a world, you know, my question is, what is the minimum number of people that you need to have to avoid inbreeding to the point where you're going to wipe your population out? They got 300 people, and I'm going to post this article up in, uh, I don't know, probably on the main Facebook page. I might toss it over onto the uh, support, the V'ger Please support group. But Popular Mechanics ran a uh, a pretty interesting article about, you know, if humanity was to go out and populate, what's the minimum number of people you'd have to bring? 10,000 is, is what they name the correct number of people to build a fresh society. You can do less. I think they said you could get away with 500, but the 500 would have had to return to Earth within six generations, I say, I want to say, before you start having like massive genetic deficiency uh, issues start cropping up. So the fact that there's only 300 people here, like you would have to have so much like massive inbreeding going on to keep these cities viable. And in case, you know, to the point where, some string of uh, chicken pox comes through and like wipes out a hundred percent of the population. Cause nobody's got an immunity to it. Like I feel like they just took a bunch of stuff that they thought, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if wrote it on a piece of paper, threw it all in a hat and then like dragged it out and just built this smorgasbord of horseshit episode uh, with the potential for some really cool stuff. Like, you know, like Stevie said, if this was just an episode about, Hey, here's a really attractive option to not going further uh, on the Star Trek. Do you take it or do you leave it? They could have had some hotness on their hands, and that would have been a cool way, I think, to, to end the last episode. Again, this was supposed to be the season finale for season one, this big uh, breakthrough moment of, you know, one of the scenes towards the end is Chakotay and uh, Janeway walking down the hall. She had said that any of the crew members who wanted to stay on the planet would be free to do so. Just meet us in the cargo bay at 1,500 hours and we'll, you know, offboard you. And there's a suspense as they're in front of the doors waiting for them to open, seeing who's going to jump ship, and they open up, and of course, uh, the room is completely empty. I mean, it's just so, un- like like everything else, is it's unearned. Like, 
Okay. For, I want to address some of the stuff you brought up before we, we finish the episode <clears throat> with, I actually was thinking the same thing that you were about the amount of people that survived, because I think it was a big plot point, at least at one point in Battlestar Galactica, trying to make sure like enough people survive to make people in the future. Yes. I, I know it's something Baltar brings up or something like that. So I had that on my mind, like 300 doesn't feel like enough. And, and that Japanese comment did like stick out to me for the same reason it did, but you know what, whatever, obviously this is so half-assed it's like quarter-assed so i I almost don't even want to hold that against it because everything else about this episode is so bad on a fundamental level that that one little detail almost seems inconsequential but granted i think you're absolutely right it's not enough people the premise of them finding humans that were there as a result of like mid-20th century abductions and that they have this like retro futuristic world that they've built as a consequence like they had all this alien technology that they got from from the aliens they deposed and they built like this this like 1950s version of the future and this is what the you know it's very reminiscent of home but very different and this is what voyager encounters and asks to consider like hey maybe we could like stay here and like be part of this because it's like home even if it's very different I, that once once Stevie put that thought in my head, I was like, man, that is such a good idea. How is it that we two schmoes on our fucking couch watching this episode immediately came up with a far better idea than these guys? I just can't get my mind around how these dudes were so blind to how bad their show was. Because like you said from the start, they thought this was good. They thought they fucking nailed it. And... And nothing could be further from the truth. It's all just so patchy and sloppy and stupid and rushed. And really the only things that, that, that comes close to providing any genuine entertainment or saving it is a couple scenes early on where your guest actress that's playing Amelia Earhart, you know, tries. That's it. Like, that's the only good thing I can say about it. Oh, and you land the ship. Even and they tackle very... Oh yeah, and then and you got yourself some tackleberry, you know, yeah. added bonus. I'm telling you, man, go through and read the the memory off on this thing. Like everybody in the executive production staff on this just sucks this thing's dick full force, except for Michael Pillar's. Like basically, like yeah, this is a stupid episode and trash. Like he got a ton of brownie points. What I don't understand is like again, Brian Branagh or whatever his name is, Brian, the dude yeah. who like co-wrote all good things, wrote this episode. Like how? and love this episode like how how do you do so good and then create ron moore dude ron moore when people forget that ron moore was was hard in the paint on the the best of tng he was the primary force behind why ds9 was good and you know he's not anywhere near the show he ends up like doing two episodes like gets in a fight i think it said something about like he had a real aversion to the culture in the writer's room and Rightfully so, man. I don't think anybody with self-respect could have walked into half of these episode planning meetings and been like, yes, I I feel good about telling you that you're doing the right thing in here. This is the worst episode of Star Trek I think I've seen. It's not the worst. I still think the Candy Corn tragedy was the worst out of Voyager. This is second worst, but the Candy Corn tragedy episode was so boring and stupid that i lost total interest this was so baffling i 
remembered it strongly before I rewatched it, and I was invested in watching it because of how ridiculously weird it was. So for that reason alone, I will say it's better than than uh, ex post facto, aka the candy corn tragedy. This um, episode had the integrity, the story integrity, and the cohesion of a Disney coloring book. <laughs> I think that's an insult to Disney coloring books everywhere. Yeah, less um, plot holes. But yeah, it end, it ends with oh look, they're all staying. Like uh, were you were supposed to think that someone wasn't. Like the la- this this plot point that came in the last twelve minutes, whatever. Who fucking cares? Let's move on. So that's that. All right. That's the thirty sevens. Let me see where I'm gonna steer us from here. <clears throat> episodes. All right, Joe. Up next, season two, episode two, initiations. Chakotay is captured by a young Kmart clan, who is undergoing. His manhood ritual. Yeah, we get a we get a lot of tasty uh, uh, Kazon backstory if that's what you were in the market for, and we actually get a another uh, like guest star, uh, familiar Star Trek guest star on that one. Is it going to be Mahoney from Police Academy? Or... <laughs> it is not. It is is it going to be the guy who can make all the noises with his mouth? Uh, it's uh, Aaron Einberg who plays Nog on DS Nine. Mm. Yeah, I know. You're super excited. Well, it can't be any worse than this goddamn thing. I'll be interested to see, like, you know, they're not going to do uniform updates and stuff on this show. So there's not really, a, you know, you don't have Starfleet retrofits of the ship. Like, things really can't change that much between these seasons. I'll be interested to see where the where the polish comes in, if it does come in at all. On, uh, on that note, my friend, uh, ha- belated happy birthday. I'm glad my gift to you was so painful. And, the uh, worst episode I've seen it's on my goddamn birthday of all days. <laughs> oh, I, can I almost don't want to give this thing a, a rule of acquisition. That's how much I hated this fucking thing. It's not worth it. Don't waste it. <sighs> well, I got one anyways. Rule of acquisition number 75. Home is where the heart is, but the stars are made of latinum. I, mean, I take that back. One. Yeah, it is a good one, but I might have to take it back anyways. This, uh, gosh. Uh... All right. Well, I'll see you on uh, episode two. Yeah, man. Um, the, uh, once again, thank you to everybody for listening to Feed You Please. Uh, please uh, share the podcast, rate the podcast, tell us what you think. Join yeah, our Facebook group. Uh, throw us. Uh, you know, we're not we're not begging you guys out there for you know give us money or Patreon or any of that other stuff. But uh, we see the membership growing. It feels good. It motivates us to keep going forward. Uh, you know, we deeply appreciate anybody who's taken the time out to leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, that seems like a great place to harvest people. Joe's continually fighting the good fight, throwing his life away, going onto Reddit and <laughs> picking <laughs> fights there. I gotta try, man. I, it, like Peter alluded to, uh, fortunately we have real jobs, so we definitely are doing this to entertain and entertain alone. The only thing we ask tell people about us we we get we get excited about entertaining more and more people uh and as we watch the the numbers tick up that really gets us one to do more and and get more adventurous and and that sort of thing so uh if you have the have the time and the inclination let people know about the show that's the biggest and best thing you can do for us we do appreciate it on that note uh i am joseph i'm peter and this has been Vija Please, a hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. We will see you next week. Peace! <laughs> <laughs>